Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this episode. In the early Christian era, charisma was understood as a special sign of God's favor on religious leaders. But in the intervening centuries, ideas about charisma have shifted to encompass compelling figures of all kinds whose personal magnetism has been attributed to a range of qualities, from physical stature to intellectual genius to a unique understanding of their moment in history. Charismatic leadership has also come to be seen as a double-edged sword, allowing those who wield it the ability to spawn movements for great social good and also profound evil. Our guest today is Molly Worthen, Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This year, as a fellow at the Center, Molly has been working on a new book tentatively titled Spellbound Nation, Charisma in American History, that revisits the religious origins of the idea of charisma and seeks to understand how those traces continue to mark the relationship between charismatic leaders and their followers. Welcome, Molly. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So let's start with um, telling us about the origin of the idea of charisma, as well as the etymology behind the word. That's a great place to start, because even though my project has expanded well beyond this single word and cases where people apply it explicitly, it is still really the touchstone. And you alluded in your introductory remarks to the two the two sides, the two persistent definitions of charisma. And certainly the older of the two is this religious idea. There's this ancient Greek word charis, uh, which means divine anointing, chosenness by the gods, a chosenness that brings with it a special power that often has a a frightening duality, a, a, a power that can be used for good and for evil. And in the New Testament, St. Paul took this word and, and coined a slightly different word, charisma, by which he meant gifts bestowed by God's grace. And the term remained quite uh, theological for centuries, one that you would encounter in, in discussions of the Holy Spirit, but you would not uh, encounter it in the sense that perhaps we use it today when we seek to describe a kind of ineffable phenomenon that seems to transpire between certain leaders and their followers that we can't understand. The way in which we use the word today in modern politics really comes from the sociologist Max Weber, who borrowed this term in the first decade of the 20th century from uh, some German church history uh, in which he had encountered the idea of charisma. He borrowed it and transferred it to the political context. And he was very interested in these prophetic figures who claimed a kind of uh, divine status, a chosenness, claimed a set of supernatural powers that persuaded followers to essentially make a bargain with them. Uh, the charismatic leader would provide manna, would, would elevate the, uh, the status of the followers if they would do their part, if they would believe in him as this special superhuman figure. And this is how he uses the word charisma. So really, he wasn't moving all that far from the religious sense of the term. And the whole history of the etymology in the century that has transpired since then has been one long conversation with 
Max Weber. And I think we still more or less use his definition when we use the term in modern speech. I like to say that charisma is this irresistible and sometimes dangerous allure that gives a leader the power to move a crowd. And it's a form of influence that doesn't hinge on the threat of physical coercion or making a totally credible, rational, reasonable argument. It doesn't necessarily depend on the clout of institutions or traditions, although it often coexists with those things. You, you find charisma in, say, uh, you know, a head of state who also has the clout of the military and institutions behind him. I think it's a nebulous term that appeals to us because it still has this sort of whiff of the supernatural about it. I've observed that when we are really struggling to articulate what's happening at a political rally or a, a music concert or uh, you know, any kind of public encounter between followers and, and a figure in authority, and we, we're really scratching our heads, maybe we personally don't get it, we personally are not attracted to this leader, often we punt to this term charisma. Because what does it mean? It's this sort of, it's this sort of magical force. We often grasp for all sorts of analogies and metaphors. We talk about magnetism and mesmerism and words like these, uh, which are evocative and useful, but at root, we don't really know what we're seeing. And it's that problem that I'm really interested in. I'm interested in going back over the big swath of American history since roughly the, the first uh, Puritan settlers in the early 17th century to our own time and ask how is this religious sense of charisma intertwined with the political sense and how were smart observers in various communities making sense of these encounters between leaders and followers in their specific historical moments. So you're talking about these two vectors, the kind of religious vector as well as the political vector, and, and Weber sort of severing the idea of charisma from its religious roots. But I gather from what you're saying that one could also suggest that charisma is also just kind of religious authority in disguise. I am struggling with that question. And I see my book as partly an investigation into the perhaps partly illusory idea of secularization, this notion that our culture has become less and less religious over time and more and more inclined to uh, follow the uh, arguments of science or, or simply materialist motives unadorned by the pious veneer of theology that perhaps confused so many humans in times past. And uh, as a historian who's long specialized in religion, I tend to be skeptical of, of the secularization thesis, at least if it's understood in a very simplistic way, while also recognizing that it is undeniable that the authority of organized religion has declined in the West over the past couple of centuries, even in the United States, which has long been this exception to the broader pattern of declining church membership numbers and baptism rates and, and, and so forth across the West generally. I think scholars across many disciplines are trying to figure out how to think about religion, how to think about that spiritual impulse that I think crops up in humans in, in pretty much any cultural and historical context in some way, when we no longer have the easy metrics that we have been used to using for a long time, we can no longer really rely on 
figures of, of church attendance or you know whether the top YouTube stars are ordained pastors of various kinds. We have to be a little bit more broad-minded in how we think about that spiritual impulse. So I think charisma is a really interesting lens through which to ask those questions and say, is this the same impulse you know, that we see first in you know, the, the Puritan heretic Anne Hutchinson and her ability to tell this story about divine assurance and pull all of these Massachusetts Bay Puritans away from the authority of their priests to her account of one's relationship with God? Is, is that the same thing over the centuries that we see cropping up again in, say, the Black nationalist Marcus Garvey's United Negro Improvement Association in the years around World War I and the sense of existential meaning that he gives Black Americans at that time? And is it again you know, repeated in some way in the late 20th century in the appeal of TED Talk giving Silicon Valley gurus? Or is it a bit too simple to say it's the same? Uh, surely there is some middle ground here. There is a story of continuity and also pretty profound change. I mean, are there consistent patterns, though, to, that account for the kind of ebb and flow of charismatic movements and, and also anti-charismatic backlash that we see? I think there are some patterns, and I am in the middle of getting my arms around a vast literature produced primarily by social scientists looking at these patterns. Social scientists are really great interlocutors for historians because they do tend to uh, see human experience more in terms of rather ahistorical patterns, and they perhaps focus a little bit less on change over time, whereas historians are sometimes fall into the trap of saying, well, each period is so different from the one that comes before or after. We really need to resist the temptation to generalize. I think one observation that social scientists have made and that my own historical research certainly bears out is that in particular moments of social disorder and chaos, when people feel serious doubts about the institutions and traditions that have reassured them and, and given their life meaning, they tend to be more open, eager to hear from a charismatic follower who offers a different narrative. I think there's a lot of power in, in narrative, in giving humans a story in which they can see themselves as actors. And that's especially true in these moments of, of social upheaval, whether it's um, years of the early republic or the, the Great Depression or our own time when we have um, so much uh, socioeconomic insecurity and I think a lot of seeking for some sort of way to make sense of it all at, at a time when the story about globalization and, and international harmony and peace and a great world economy that's going to lift all boats has been just totally smashed as, a, as really an illusion for so many people. I'd also add another pattern that is, has really struck me is the way in which claiming charismatic authority, claiming a, a kind of a anointing from above, a, a supernatural source of revelation, it is time and again a path to at least temporary power for types of people who don't have access at least not great access to authority through institutions or, or established hierarchies. So I found myself writing a lot about women, a lot about people of color who have used these kinds of claims to assert their right to lead, to speak, to interject into history in some way. 
And more often than not in their specific historical context, at least until fairly recent history, they fail in the short term. But I think if you, if you pay attention to the tradition that they're a part of, there is something bigger than just these isolated stories of failed slave rebellions or uh, small religious movements uh, you know, focused on a woman's authority that seem to fizzle out. If you take the big picture and step back, they do amount to a, a larger, something changing that I think amounts to something bigger once you get to the 20th, 21st century. So can one then generalize about uh, whether or not charisma has been a force for good or ill in democracies? I mean, you've touched on these vast, troubled, and often troubling characters like Matt Turner or Andrew Jackson or George Wallace or one might speculate even Trump. So how do we generalize about charisma's force in the trajectory of democracy or can we? I think trying to generalize about the morality of charisma is as hazardous as trying to generalize about the morality of religion. Uh, the tropism toward a charismatic leader is just a feature of human psychology in the same way that I, I think that humans have this tropism toward the extra rational that we sometimes call religion. And as you say, in, in some cases, it plays a role in uh, widening access to the democratic process and elevating uh, the dignity of, of human beings. If we look at uh, you know, charismatic leaders in, in the civil rights movement or something like this, but then there are so many cases in which it has a far more mixed record. And in fact, one of the more interesting moments in the narrative I've been putting together is uh, the period directly during and directly after World War II, when all intellectuals across disciplines who were interested in this question of leadership were totally focused on explaining the rise of fascism in Europe and of course, in particular, the rise of Hitler and Nazi Germany. And uh, in the 1950s, you know, if you, if you search for the term charisma in English language scholarship, you find that uh, observers of contemporary politics are using that term solely in terms of Hitler. And it's this scary, scary thing. And so much energy is expended by social scientists and psychologists to try to account for this complete abandonment of, of rationality and morality in the uh, shadow of this, of this leader, whose authority seemed, you know, when Hitler first came to power, his authority seemed rather humorous and kind of impossible to many observers who, who saw him as a rather unappealing speaker, a kind of goofy looking man, and wrote these accounts of early Nazi rallies that seem a little bit afraid, but also perplexed by the hold this man has. So I think that that, that shadow, that uh, World War II and the story of, of fascist leaders in that historical moment and all of the murderous bloodshed that followed, that has really shaped for good and for ill the way we think about demagogues and, and charisma and amoral totalitarian aims being Kind of intertwined. I suppose while I write about Hitler in my book, I'm more interested in the figures whose legacies are far more ambiguous. So in that same moment, when you see the rise of fascist parties in Europe, you also see the, uh, the, the rising political star of Huey Long, the senator from Louisiana, who is this 
incredibly polarizing figure uh, who runs essentially a, a mob, you know, mob organization in the state of Louisiana that accounts for a lot of his power. And he is reviled by so many of the, the kind of grand old men of the Senate and, and the traditionalists in the, in the media who see him as this slovenly kind of clown-like man who wears these goofy suits and is always kind of trying to perform and just seems like a, someone who doesn't deserve the stature of, of being a senator. But then he has this fervently loyal base because he was so committed to elevating the awful uh, poverty-stricken life of so many of his constituents. And there's this kind of sincere populism in, I guess, its, its least pejorative sense in his movement uh, that makes it much more complicated. So, you know, I think it's important to get away from the temptation to collapse all historical analogies into the, the most extreme cases of charismatic leadership, either for good or for ill, and getting into instead the, the paradoxes that are really apparent in almost every case. So your book is focusing on charisma in American history, but I, in what, what ways is the phenomenon of charisma in America distinct, say, from the phenomenon of charisma in, in Europe or somewhere else in the world? Or is it? I think the phenomenon of charisma is like almost any broad historical phenomenon, whether it's war or the role of ideology, the role of institutionalized religion, racial conflict, any of these giant, giant historical problems you might name, in that in each case, you can certainly find uh, important parallels to other national or other cultural contexts. And you can also find aspects that are exceptional and rather weird, in particular to a given national situation. The story I tell is necessarily uh, more international at certain points. So in the 17th, early 18th century, it would be very silly to talk about a, a uniquely somehow isolated American context when you're talking about charisma as it's playing out in Puritan Massachusetts Bay, because these people didn't think of themselves as Americans. And the people that I write about, like the woman Anne Hutchinson, are characters in this broader story. And you can find, um, especially in the English Civil War period, loads of prophets and prophetesses running around, you know, doing many of, of the same things that Anne Hutchinson was doing and got in so much trouble for doing, essentially claiming divine revelation. And so there's this way in which zooming out and taking heed of, of those international parallels points us to the bigger story of the consequences of the Protestant Reformation and the way in which that broke open access to the Holy Spirit in a way that was just caused a lot more turmoil than what you see in the high Middle Ages. I write a lot in the book too about uh, Franz Mesmer and mesmerism. And you know, he made his career initially in France in the 1780s with his claims that he could manipulate this invisible magnetic fluid that flows, he claimed, in and around all uh, material in the universe. And he would sit across from you with your knees pinned between his knees and run his fingers over you, getting control of the magnetic fluid. Sometimes he would have you lie in a bath with iron filings, I think, and play his glass harmonica. Really bizarre, bizarre stuff. 
Louis the Sixteenth was so unnerved, he assembled a royal commission that included Ben Franklin, among others, to assess whether this was a fraud or whether there was something to it. Uh, the commission said it's definitely a fraud, but that didn't stop it at all. And in fact, this movement that has this early efflorescence in Europe really takes off in the American context a little bit later. And it does so in a context in which Americans are going to see spiritualist trance speakers, and they're also going to hear chemists and engineers and physicists demonstrating the beginnings of electromagnetic theory. I will say that even though this is an international story in so many regards, I mean, there are ways in which the American context is special. So uh, these various prophetic leaders, these kind of agitator figures who, who do pop up in so many cultural contexts, they make a very special mark in American politics and culture, I think because of the relatively free religious marketplace, if you will, the way in which America really unique among its peer countries is just a, a madhouse of religious diversity from the very beginning of, of European settlement. I mean, it's, it's never the case, even if you go back to the first Puritans, that you really have a religious monopoly. And of course, we know that with American independence and the First Amendment, even if an informal Protestant establishment certainly persists, uh, there is so much less state support for you know, any single uh, institutionalized religion that it lets these religious leaders experiment and attract followers and compete with one another in a way that I think is much more culturally powerful than we have seen in, in other national contexts. So you have these wonderful categories of uh, charismatic figures in, in your project. I mean, you're talking about mystics like Anne Hutchinson, prophets like Nat Turner, conquerors like Andrew Jackson, agitators like Morris Garvey or George Wallace, gurus like Jim Jones. For the sake of the academics in the audience, let's focus on the professor as a charismatic leader. <laughs> Tell, Give us an example. Sure. I have been just obsessed in recent weeks with one fellow who was a, a professor, a physicist named Richard Feynman, who uh, kind of grew up in the uh, hothouse of the Manhattan Project. He was one of the young physicists working there at Los Alamos. And he, he would win a Nobel Prize in, in 1965. And that was really what kind of catapulted him to some level of presence in the public layperson's consciousness. But long before then, he had developed this kind of cult following. He taught at Caltech and he became famous for uh, his lectures laying bare the, the basic workings of natural law. He was uh, such a good lecturer that his own colleagues would kind of come and gather at the door of his lecture hall and listen in. And someone got, got it in their heads to record these and publish them as a series of books, Feynman's Lectures on Physics, that still sell really well. At the same time, he was so preoccupied with creating his own mythology. He not only loved to learn new and somewhat eccentric things, but also tell story after story about them. He learned the bongos. He became an expert safe cracker who made a total fool of all kinds of fancy generals at Los Alamos by you know, cracking their safes that they thought were so secure. He learned to draw. He, he was a ladies' man, and he loved drawing nude models and uh, became so reasonably good at this that he had his own personal show, a you know, one-man art show. He is such a compelling figure 
because of these this kind of wild um, disregard for you know the buttoned up government committee physicist that we might think of as rising up through the Cold War technocracy in these days. But also, I'm fascinated by the intertwining of you know these stories of seduction and. Uh, you know, his interest in getting really good at picking up women at bars and things like this with the, the sort of eros of the classroom. I think it draws our attention to the way in which his kind of public authority was probably only possible for, for white men at that particular time. You can't really imagine a woman doing whatever would be the equivalent or a black man, you know, going to a topless bar and sort of proudly, you know, drawing the women and things like this and telling the newspaper reporters about it and emerging, you know, with his reputation totally intact. And it seems like something that tells us about access to this particular type of authority at this time. But also, you know, Feynman is a way in which we see that the, the expert professor does not necessarily mean authority that is only, you know, rational, anointed by fancy universities with degrees and peer-reviewed research. Rather, so much of his appeal was, I think, the way he was kind of a beatnik professor. He, you know, didn't give his lectures in a suit and tie, and he was making a big deal of rejecting uh, authority. I think that Albert Einstein was very similar in this. He famously, you know, he never wore socks, and he would always you know, show up in a kind of disheveled appearance, and he was this pacifist who criticized the arms race. He managed to kind of combine these, a very institutional authority with, with a kind of countercultural posture in a way that I think was very compelling. So that's just one thread in this, uh, under this heading of expert or professor that I'm playing around with. So it's just fascinating. So final question. Why this particular topic? What drew you to it? What in your personal DNA made you fascinated with the idea of charisma? I have long been interested in forms of authority that are not purely materialist. And my last book was really about religious authority in American evangelicalism. And I, I wanted to zoom out from that. The ideas for this project were starting to percolate in the early years of the Donald Trump administration when I think many scholars were really struck by the relationship that Trump had with his, and continues to have with his followers, and the almost complete failure of the academic establishment to predict the power of that before the 2016 election and to really grapple with it. So this project has taken form in the shadow of our political moment, and I hope to take the story all the way up to our current moment. Thank you very much, Professor Molly Worthen, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.